what's happening before the service. It, it tells me that everyone's warmed up. So, so I'm gonna ask a question to start, okay? What are we fighting for in this sermon series? Joy, yes, okay, fighting for joy, right? Uh, do you want more of that in your life? Yes, okay, yes. That's, that's, that's what we're doing here in this sermon series because joy is the theme of Philippians. And so we've been talking about and we'll continue to talk about what it looks like for us to pursue joy in our lives. Okay, but I think first we have to straighten something out. Did any of you get um, a mailer this week? It was a magazine that was very glossy and it had pictures of an eagle and an American flag uh, and various beasts uh, from Revelation. Did you guys know what I'm talking about? This, this mailer that a lot of us got in East Nashville? Uh, there, there were lots of angels dressed in white t-shirts and big fluffy wings in the back. Okay, I also got one of those brochures. I read through it. It was very interesting. Uh, there were some quibbles that I had with some of the contents, but that is not today's sermon. We can talk about that later, okay? But something that really captured me from this brochure is this idea that in the Bible, there's this secret code that needs to be cracked, right? There's actually a page in the brochure that adds up numbers and gets to 666 and the whole thing. Anyway, and there's this kind of assumption that underlies that magazine but also underlies a lot of the way that people can approach Christianity, which is that there's this, the Bible is trying to get a message across to us, but for us to really understand it, there's like a, there's a secret, a secret thing that we have to buy into. Okay, um, that's not true. So whenever somebody starts to tell you that there is something uh, hidden, that they're gonna un finally unlock the secret of the Bible to you, that is a really good red flag. Because the Bible, one of the, one of the kind of theological words we use is it's perspicuous, okay? That's just a fancy way of saying the Bible is clear. For the, th that's a, it's a, yeah, I know, it's kind of ironic, right? Uh, that it's a really important thing that we believe about Scripture, that the things that are important for us to know, Scripture is clear about. And yes, there are some things that are confusing, but they're not so confusing that you reading the Bible are gonna lose what the Bible is about. That's the same thing for us studying Philippians. We believe that the message that we're, that we're diving into here is very clear. It's not hidden, it's on the surface. It, and, and that's not to deny that there are right, like parts of scripture that can be hard to understand. Or even, sometimes even Jesus talks about a hiddenness to the gospel. But when Jesus talks about a hiddenness of the gospel, he's not talking about... Um, like right now we've lost our remote at our house and we haven't been able to find it for two weeks, okay? That remote is hidden and I don't know if we'll ever find it. That's not the kind of hiddenness that Jesus is talking about, right? That's kind of the magazine numerology hiddenness. Jesus isn't talking about that kind of hiddenness. He's talking about the hiddenness when I lose my car keys, which happens often, okay? But usually where they are is in my pocket. It's that, the gospel is that kind of hidden, right? For those who are willing to look, it's right there on the surface. And so as we're talking about joy, what, what I'm not gonna unfold for us this morning is some like secret of joy that you're gonna find in some kind of self-help book that if you can just add this thing to your life, then you will unlock joy, right? If you guys remember those commercials from when we were kids, like, the, like just add water and then the little pill becomes like a sponge or something magical or sea monkeys. That, that's, it's not a just ad that we're talking about here. What we're talking about in this journey of joy is a journey of discipleship. That us fighting for joy in our lives isn't something that you're gonna hear one sermon on and walk out of here and suddenly be flooded with joy for the rest of your life. No. 
What we're talking about is us engaging in a journey of becoming more and more like Christ. And that as we do that, there's joy for us. That our hope is that we're gonna become a people who are more and more joyful as we're more and more rooted in the gospel. But that's dependent on you and I taking what we talk about in here and learning to practice it outside of this room. So this morning, I'm gonna give us three practices that help root us in Christ and lead us to joy. Talk about three practices that root us in Christ and lead us toward joy. But friends, those practices are no good if we just leave them in this room. And that's what we've been talking about for the last few weeks. We talked about uh, in week one, the joy of losing your own priorities. Have any of you mastered losing your own priorities yet? I don't see any hands. Okay, that probably no. And, th and that's okay. That's, that's the entire journey of the Christian life is learning how we set down our agendas and pick up the agenda that Jesus has for us. I just wanna encourage you in that, that as we're talking about these practices today, what we're trying to do is to en encourage each other with what's true and to give us things that we can hold on to and start to weave into our lives as we're living outside of these walls in the rest of the week. Okay, that's where we're going. So uh, if you have your Bibles, you could open up to Philippians. We're in Philippians 1. And we're gonna be at the very end of verse 18 and then through verse 26. So end of 18 through 26. Let me read this for us. It says, yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. For if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Pray with me. Oh, Father, uh, who is sufficient for these things? Lord, we trust that your word is good and it's true. And Lord, we ask that you would open our minds to it. Uh, we're thankful for the experiences you've given our older brother, Paul, uh, through his sufferings and trials in life, Lord, and thankful for this window into his heart and ask Jesus that you would be shaping us um, to love you in the same way. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So one of the things that I think we've got to admit as we come to this passage, it, it really is, uh, it's a gut punch. And I, I felt that this week as I was preparing this sermon, especially verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Whoa. Right, can you imagine being able to say that? Like Paul writes this with confidence. He's not stating what he would like his life to be. He, Paul is saying, this is, this is true about me. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And I think about that in my own life and I, 
think, man, Lord, I have, I can't say that with the same kind of confidence Paul can. And, and I think what's been helpful for me is, as I've prayed about this and thought about this this week is that Paul isn't intending for this passage to be shaming to us. But this is, this is a humbling passage. And friends, there are, no, there are no commands in this chunk of scripture that we just read. We talk about the indicative and the imperative in scripture. The indicative is when God tells us this is who you are and the imperative is when God tells us because of who you are, this is how you are to live. What we see here is not really either of those things. What we have is a window into Paul's heart. That Paul is talking to his friends and he's saying, friends, I, I know that you want me to come and see you and I want to come and see you. And as I hear that request, Paul is saying, this is where my heart is. Right? As a man who is locked in, well, not locked in prison, but under house arrest, right? Trained to a Roman guard, as we've been talking about, can't leave whose ministry and his life has been shrunk from this grand adventure traveling across the Mediterranean into this one room of a house that Paul is encouraging his friends and he's saying, even in this place to live as Christ and to die as gain. Here's what's happening in me and in my heart in the middle of this house arrest. And what that does for us is it, 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 it's not to shame us, but to open us up and to say, Lord, I want my heart to look like Paul's heart. What do you need to do in me to bring me to that place? One of the things I love about what Paul is saying here, one of the things I want that Paul describes here is Paul has such freedom, doesn't he? That here he is, literally chained to someone else, not able to leave this house, and yet Paul expresses so much freedom in his life that he is, he is convinced that the thing that is most important to him, he has the freedom to pursue regardless of his circumstances. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me is what Paul says. Regardless of what is going on, as long as I am living, whatever, whatever I'm about in my life is gonna be fruitful. It's gonna be fruitful. It's gonna be, uh, it's gonna be, is going to be directed toward the end that I know it should be directed toward. And it's going to have success even, Paul is saying. What, what we're hearing is a man who has totally surrendered his life to the control of a good and loving and sovereign God. And that when we do that, there's, there's freedom there. So I want to talk about exactly how we see that in this passage. And that's going to lead us toward this first practice. Okay? So we're going to talk about the freedom that Paul experiences, how he's given up control in his life, and how that leads us to the practice of repentance. Okay, so start with me in verse 19. Paul says, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. So we're going to focus on that phrase. This will turn out for my deliverance. And it would be easy to read that and to think that what Paul is saying is that this will turn out for my deliverance and that that means that what Paul is saying is this will mean that I am released. Right? It's easy to read this and think that Paul is expressing a confidence in him getting out of house arrest. Okay, that's not what Paul's saying. Because we, we see a little bit later in verse 20, it says whether by life or by death. So Paul has actually surrendered himself to the fact that he may live or he may die depending on what happens at his trial, that he's that he's waiting for. So what is, what is he saying then when he says this will turn out for my deliverance? 
Well, this word for deliverance in the original language, which would have been Greek, right? This word deliverance also kind of has a, a connotation of salvation. So another way to phrase this would be, would be Paul saying, he's confident that this will turn out for my salvation. That his imprisonment will turn out for his salvation. And here's what, here's what we need to remember about kind of Paul's view of salvation, is that salvation was both a once and for all thing and an ongoing thing. Paul talks about salvation in both ways. So when Paul talks about salvation as a once and for all thing, what he, what he declares is that because Christ has risen from the dead, that if we are united with Christ, we will be with him forever. He says that we stand before God even now justified, that our sins have been removed for us and that we are forgiven. And so there's a once and for all nature of our salvation. We are saved if we are in Christ. But Paul also talks about salvation in an ongoing sense, that we are being saved. And when Paul says that we're being saved, what he's cluing us into is this reality that our salvation is constantly changing us. That the fact that we have been made right before God is objectively true about us in a spiritual way, but that we, we need time in our lives for us, to, for us to be changed and formed into the reality of what has already been accomplished. Another word for that would be sanctification, right? If you've been around the church for a while. It's the process of becoming more and more like Jesus. And so when Paul says that he's confident that what has happened to him will work out for his deliverance, what he's expressing is his confidence that where he is in the, in the middle of very painful circumstances, that God is using those circumstances to make him look more like Jesus. His salvation is being accomplished even in that moment as he's becoming more and more like Christ. So if he lives, yes, it will be for his deliverance as he becomes more like Jesus and as he continues to labor for Jesus. At the same time, if he were to die, he is confident that that will be a deliverance because what he will realize is the ultimate outcome of his salvation, which is eternal life with Christ. So either way, live or die, life or death, whatever the situation, it will work out for Paul's deliverance. And what we find in verse then, I think it's in verse 25, yeah. Well, it kind of is really throughout 20, 22 through 26 is we catch this tension then where Paul is expressing his desire to go and to be with Christ and yet his acknowledgement that it could very well be that he continues to live his life as it currently exists, right? So Paul is confident that whatever his circumstances, he is going to be delivered. It will work out for his salvation. And from that confidence, w what he's telling his friends is that what I desire in my life is to to be with Christ face to face. And yet, he's saying, I don't have control over that. And so it may be that I actually continue with you. And so there's a gap then between what Paul desires and what Paul may likely experience. But what he's saying is that even in that gap, and that gap is pain in our lives, right? The, the gap between what we want and what we may experience. That even in that place, Paul can be confident that God is at work for his deliverance. What that tells us is that Paul is a man who has given up control. Because when we're talking about attempting to control our lives, what we're talking about is our desire to structure our lives in a way that eliminates pain and that manufactures joy. Okay? That's what we're trying to do as we steer kind of the ship of our lives. 
How do I avoid the rocks of pain and get to a place of joy? And Paul's saying, no, 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 I've been delivered, I've been delivered from that into a place of, of, of trusting a God who is going to deliver me regardless of my circumstances. We're going to talk about this idea of control for a second. And what we have to be honest with ourselves about is that we constantly overestimate our ability to, to, to eliminate pain from our lives and to manufacture joy. We are constantly overestimating our ability our control over our lives and the effect that that control has. Okay, like I had this experience uh, a few weeks ago where I ordered some vitamins. We could talk about why I take vitamins. That's a whole different conversation, but we're not going to go there, okay? So I ordered some vitamins, and they were, supposed to, they were supposed to come in the mail, and it had been like two weeks, which is obviously a very unacceptable time to wait for any kind of package. So I look up on US, no, no, it wasn't USPS. It was UPS, right? Uh, like, where are my vitamins? and they were in Indianapolis, and they had been in Indianapolis for weeks. So I call UPS, and I'm like, hey, here's my tracking number. Where are my vitamins? And they're like, oh, they're in Indianapolis. I'm like, well, yes, I know that. When are they going to come to me? And they said, oh, we don't know. I'm like, uh, don't they have tracking numbers? Like, don't you scan those things? Like, aren't they on a shelf somewhere in Indianapolis? And they're like, yeah, we, they just got lost. They're like, you know, there was a big snowstorm, so. So What? Aren't the vitamins in the warehouse? How does that mean that you lost my vitamins? And you're like, I don't know, sir, but we can't find them. I was like, okay, so what are you going to do about that? And they said, oh, well, you can call the distributor. I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. So you lost my package, but now it's my problem again? And the guy was like, well, yes. Okay. Oh, how is your... (laughs) I've been trying to be more assertive on these customer service calls, right? So I'm like, so how is it... My problem, I have to do more work because you lost my package. And he was like, well, that's just the way that it is. Ah, I want more control in my life than that, right? No, I should be able to fix that. You should be able to fix that. In the 21st century, I think, can't you just get a package to my door? And the answer is no. No, not even UPS can do that. I say all that to say, we just have way less control over our lives than we think we do, don't we? And Paul, Paul has confronted that in his life, and he's confronted it in the most ultimate place, which is death. That death is this existential threat that we are most trying to avoid in our lives. Isn't it? We avoid it with the way that we live and the way that we fight for our health and arrange all kinds of circumstances in our lives, and we, we fight against it in our minds in the way that we push this reality as far away from ourselves as possible. It's why we're all so afraid of aging. It's why the richest people in the world are so uh, drawn to this quest of preventing aging or stopping death. Do you know Jeff Bezos, Uncle Jeff, has invested in this company called Unity Biotechnology. And the goal of Unity Biotechnology is to to prevent aging, to disable aging. Larry Page, one of the founders of Google, has invested a ton of his own money in this company called Calico, And the mission statement of Calico is to solve death. We laugh at that. That's what, that's, we laugh at that. But as much as uh, we can kind of caricature these people with unlimited resources who are trying to avoid death, we actually are all doing that in our own individual lives, aren't we? And that's what makes Paul's statement here so arresting. That to live is Christ and to die is gain. 
This is a person who's finally admitted to himself that his situation is beyond his control, that actually the control that, that we often think that we have in our lives is just an illusion. And what this brings us to is this beautiful practice of repentance that we would get to ask the Lord, Lord, would you show me in my life the ways and the places that I'm attempting to control my own destiny, to avoid pain and to manufacture joy? Because here's the thing about control in our lives. It's not, what, what we're called to here is not just let go and let God. If you have that framed somewhere in your house, you don't have to take it down, right? There's, there's truth in that. That is part of what Paul is calling us to here, but it's more than that because our desire to control our lives, to avoid pain and to manufacture joy, it isn't just something that happens in our heads or in in our hearts. It works itself out in the way that we live and often the way that it expresses itself is in sin. Isn't it? That's where all of my manipulation comes from is my desire to avoid pain or to manufacture joy. And I will do all kinds of things in my life to get to that place. I'll lie. Won't you? Well, maybe not lie, right? I just won't tell the whole truth. Yeah, that's a lie. And we could, we could look at all kinds of examples of the ways that I do that. When I get worried about things, I get really fast and I move, 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 move. And you know what I do when I generate that kind of pressure and anxiety in me and that's what I choose to act out of is my illusion of control. That always hurts the people who are around me. Always. This last week, I had to call like three different coworkers and say, hey, I'm sorry. Because my anxiety came out on you this week. And it was a sin. My desire to control what would happen here on a Sunday morning has actually hurt people that I care about and really respect. So I've had to say, I'm, I'm sorry for that. Will you forgive me? And ultimately, when that control comes out and is directed at other people, it's not just sin that we express toward each other. It also is sin against God. And so the call is that we would, as a practice of repentance, it wouldn't just be repenting toward each other, although that's important, but that we would also, before God, say, Lord, I'm sorry. Would you, Lord, would you help me to put down all of the ways that my desire to control is hurting the people around me? And would you give me something better to pick up, Lord? Would you give me the freedom? Would you help me live in the freedom that you've given me, that you were a God who was good and a God who was in control? So that's our first practice, right? the practice of repentance. That as we practice repentance in our lives, it helps us uh, live in the freedom of trusting a God who is, who is totally good and totally sovereign. It allows us to live in a place where despite our circumstances or no matter our circumstances, that we're able to say to live as Christ and to die as gain. Because then we've got a second practice we have to talk about. It's a practice of solitude and silence. So the last half of verse 18, it says, yes, and I will rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. So Paul is talking about his future. And and what we see Paul doing throughout this passage is that he's saying, he's expressing this confidence in who God is and that because God is at work in his circumstances, that no matter what is happening to him, that whatever is gonna come to him in his future, there will be joy there. And I will rejoice, Paul says confidently. And I will rejoice even, even in my own death. How can Paul say that? We get it in verse 23. 
Paul says, I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. I'm just going to focus on that phrase, to be with Christ. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ. He says, for that is far better. So Paul is looking forward to this being with Christ, and he says that there's joy there because he knows where's the joy? In Christ. We'll try that again, okay? Where is the joy? It's in Christ, right? Because that he, he is where the joy is because he is our joy. And Paul can say that and he can express that confidence about the future of being with Christ because he knows the joy of being with Christ now in his everyday life. He's tasted it. Okay, so uh, it's, it's like my, so my sister is moving here this weekend with her family. I, right? I'm so excited. I'm pumped about it. And we FaceTime my sister and her family all the time. But me FaceTiming her doesn't mean I don't want her to move here. I get a taste of what it will be like for her and her family to be here, and I'm so excited about it. But I don't think, oh, well, because I FaceTime, you know, I don't care where you live. No, because FaceTime is just a shadow of the ultimate thing, which is getting to be together. But a taste of the FaceTime actually makes me want her to move here more. It makes me more excited about her coming. That's what Paul is expressing to us here. He knows what it's like to be with Christ, but he knows that the way that he is with Christ here is just a taste of the way he will get to be more fully with Christ when we are in glory. And so because of that, Paul can say, I, I want to I be with Christ. But if you don't know the joy of being with Christ here on this earth, it's no wonder that the joy of being with Christ in heaven isn't very appealing. It's knowing the joy of being with Christ here in this life also. It doesn't just affect the way that we view death. It also affects the way that we view our very lives here on this earth. And we see that in the way that Paul says that to live is Christ for him. The only way that can be true is, is if we are captured by what it means to be with Jesus here and now in, in this life. So we got to talk about how would we experience that kind of witness with Jesus, right? There's this guy, Eugene Peterson. He wrote a book. He's written a lot of books that I like. But I'm going to read you a quote out of, uh, this one is called The Contemplative Pastor, but it's, it's good for everyone, so just as a, as a note. Uh, and this is what he says. This is what he says about prayer or about being with God. He says, I know I can't be busy and pray at the same time. Dang, that's a problem, isn't it? I know I can't be busy and pray at the same time. I can be active and pray. I can work and pray, but I cannot be busy and pray. I cannot be inwardly rushed, distracted, or dispersed. In order to pray, I have to be paying more attention to God than to what people are saying to me. To God than my clamoring ego. And usually, for that to happen, there must be a deliberate withdrawal from the noise of the day, a disciplined detachment from the insatiable self. Okay, usually for that to happen, there must be a deliberate withdrawal from the noise of the day, a disciplined detachment from the insatiable self. For us to experience witness with our Jesus is to create the rhythm of there being space in our day where we can be quiet 
before him. Because do you know even our Lord needed that? That when he was on earth, the Gospels tell us that he would withdraw by himself to a quiet place to pray. If our Jesus needed that, how much more do we need it, right? I don't say that as a, again, I don't say that in a shaming way, but just to say if we're going to be a people who are cultivating joy in our lives, we have got to make space for practicing the presence of Jesus. And, and, a, and a first step in that for us is quieting our own souls. Psalm 131, it, it says, I've quieted my soul like a weaned child with his mother. It's making space in our lives for silence. Which I will tell you, I, I'm just going to tell you a little bit about what that practice looks like for me. I'm sure that there are lots of ways to do it, but I think sometimes it can help to have some kind of tangible ideas about what that actually means. So this has been really practic practical for me as we do the daily office. So if you grab that notebook or you're getting it in email or on Instagram, uh, you can still sign up, by the way. It's never too late. Uh, one of the first things that it says each day is that it encourages us to take two minutes of silence. I will tell you, for me, that is certainly a minimum. Often it takes a lot longer than that. But the first thing I do in that silence is I have to prepare the way that I'm going to come to the silence, which usually for me means turning off my phone. And there's all kinds of science about this. I didn't look it up, but it's real. That you just being in the same room with your phone is distracting to you. That's, that is a scientific fact. You're better off if you're going to try to engage in this kind of silence and just turning off your phone, putting it in a drawer. Already I just feel more calm thinking about that. And then I, I like have to kind of take some deep breaths. Just breathe deeply. Notice some of the things in my surroundings, right? And kind of get out of my thoughts. And often this is the part that's the hardest for me because my mind will start going to my to-do list or to this thing or to whatever in the news or to this or that. And, and that's okay. But there's a discipline of letting those thoughts be quieted, of you learning to kind of quiet those thoughts. And then to ask the Lord, Lord, what is happening inside of me? And sometimes the only way I know what's happening inside of me is actually tuning in to like physically like what I feel because anxiety for me, it sits right here. You know what I'm talking about? And part of me being silent before God is asking, oh, Lord, okay, so I'm f I feel it in my chest. Lord, Lord, I think I'm afraid. God, what am I afraid of right now? Or when I feel the kind of sadness that sits in my stomach or kind of makes my, makes my arms heavy, it's, Lord, what am I sad about right now? Lord, what am I angry about right now? Because the thing that we have to understand about being with Christ is that Christ is with you where you actually are. He's not with the version of yourself that you're trying to clean up and present to other people. He's not with you as you are already executing the plans for your day. He's with you where you actually are, even if you don't want to be with that person. And so part of practicing the presence of Jesus is, a, is connecting and acknowledging where we actually are in our lives. And then in that place, saying to the Lord, Lord, would you meet me here? Telling the Lord, Lord, I, I trust that you're with me here. What do you have to say to me? And then, just like we do in the daily office, that's when we go to the word. And that's why the word is so important is because we want the word to speak to where we actually are in our day-to-day -day lives. And you can do all that kind of meditative stuff, but then not go to the word. 
And sometimes that's okay, but, but I will tell you that going to the word is really important because the word is what keeps us from creating an idol. Right? Meditation just by itself is just a practice of self, self-soothing. That's not what Paul is about here. Paul hasn't soothed himself to the place where now he can say to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's quieting himself so that he can experience the witness with Jesus. And we know who that Jesus is in the pages and through the pages of scripture. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, it asks this question, it's question 86. It says, what is faith in Jesus Christ? And it, said, it says, faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he's offered to us in the gospel. Christ, faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he's offered to us in the gospel. And so this practice of quieting our hearts so that we can be with God, so that we can hear him through his word as he's actually speaking to us is a practice that actually invites us into receiving and resting on Christ alone as he's offered to us in the gospel. And as we do that, as we experience that witness with Jesus, it matures us. It teaches us to, del- to delight in him. It's the place where we experience joy. And that's what begins to change us so that we can say, like Paul, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. And I want to encourage you guys, it's so, this practice is so important, and it's important as even in or especially in places of our own personal darkness. So Psalm 139 talks about this. It says, Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know when I sit up and when I rise down, when I when I rise up and when I sit down, you discern my thoughts from afar. You're acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. But then it goes on to say, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day. Which means that when I quiet my heart and I don't feel Jesus, it means that he's still with me. That even when I can't see him, I know that he sees me. And that's the place that maturity is born. Is, is through the act of faith of coming to Jesus and telling him, will you tell me what's true in your word even when it doesn't feel true? That's what our brother Paul has done, right? We talked about this last week. We read through Paul's list of all of his sufferings of being shipwrecked and being beaten and being in prison and being hungry and being tired and all of those things. And what Paul is telling us in that passage in 2 Corinthians 11 is in all of those places I have experienced witness with Jesus. And so the encouragement for us, friends, is that regardless of what we're going through, that we are bringing ourselves to Jesus and experiencing witness with him. And that as he strengthens us there, that that changes our view of death and that changes our view of life. So we've got this practice of repentance and this, this practice of silence and solitude. And then we're gonna close with this last practice, which is the practice of discipleship. We see this in verses 22 and then 25 through 26. Paul says, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. That Paul... Paul's conception of his life is as someone who is laboring for Jesus out in his harvest field. 
And then he says in verse 25, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Paul is invested in his friends and their progress and their joy in the faith. And we talked about this a few weeks ago. This is, this is earlier in Philippians. Paul prays for his friends that their love would abound more and more with what? Joy. What else? With knowledge and discernment, right? He prays that your love would abound more and more in knowledge and discernment. And we talked about what it means for our love to, to mature in knowledge and discernment. It means that love is not this kind of like marshmallowy, whatever you feel, however you define it kind of love. No, that love is about what is best. And it's loving what is best for us and loving what is best for others. And, and what Paul is saying here is that his love has increased with knowledge and discernment so that what he values for his friends is their progress and their joy in the faith because that is what is best for them. And what Paul is saying is that he has actually dedicated his life to leveraging what God has given him to give to others for their progress and their joy in the faith. So what that means is that you should all quit your jobs and all come work for the church, right? No, that's not what that means. You guys know that. That this is a call that is, this is very, guys, this is very important, okay? This call is not just for professional Christians. On next Sunday, I'm gonna be ordained, which I am very excited about, right? And we believe in, in ordination and like the offices of the church and that they are important. But the fact that 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 we have pastors and elders, leaders in our church who are recognized by us as leaders, that in no way takes away from your God-given call and responsibility to engage in discipling the people around you, to giving your lives away. And God, does, God loves you enough that he would not rob you of that opportunity. That's not a burden. Paul says there is joy there. Right? In verse 26, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus. And that word glory is an even stronger form of the word joy. That Paul is saying, as I come to you and, and dedicate my life to your progress and joy in the faith, you're gonna experience joy. And what he said earlier in Philippians is that he takes joy in the people that he's giving his life away to. And Jesus loves you so much that he would not withhold that joy and just section it off to people who, who are paid by the church. But he says, no, that's for all of us. That joy is, is for you and for me. So the discipline that we're called to here is the discipline of giving our lives away, which we often call discipleship here, right? We talk about that in our discipleship groups. Guys, I could talk about this for forever, so I'm sad that it's the last point in the sermon, but we'll get to talk about it more later in Philippians, so don't worry, okay? Just as a teaser. When we talk about our discipleship, we call them discipleship groups, right? Sometimes we call them small groups, but technically speaking. And we call them that because we see these groups as a launch pad for discipleships. That what God is doing is not just in your time together, all together in a group, although that is important. But those groups are actually a launching point for relationships where we get to invest in each other's lives outside of group. And what that means, okay, what that means is that there are people in this room that you have, that, that they need to learn from you. That if you, are in, if you are in Christ, you have been given something that you can give away. If nothing else, you have the gospel. And that is, that is a big thing. That is no small thing. And as you grow and mature in Christ, your Lord is giving you experiences and tools and practices and, and ways of engaging with him that you get to share with other people. That's the process of discipleship, is getting to share those things. And as much as we're called to give those things, we're also called to receive them. 
Now, I know what happens. A lot of times in this room, we look around and we say, there aren't that many old people. That's true, okay? That's just a fact. That doesn't mean that there's no one here in this community for you to learn from. Actually, it could be someone who is younger than you. Can you imagine that? And so often we kind of get in this game of like, well, I can't ask that person because they're not older than me. I can't ask that because they're not in the same life stage as me. I can't ask that person. Okay, can we just stop with that? That what you need in your life is someone who is, who is fighting for you to pursue Christ and to experience the joy of knowing him. And that can be any person. And one of the greatest gifts that you could give to someone else in this congregation is for you to look at, look at that person and say, hey, I need your help. Can you help me with fill in the blank? I would just tell you, sometimes asking somebody, hey, will you disciple me, is a very intimidating question. <laughs> so one of the ways that you could serve somebody in this community is saying, hey, will you, will you help me uh, learn how to study scripture? Because I don't know how to do that very well. That's just an invitation for them to disciple you, right? For them to help you pursue the joy of Christ. Or these practices that we've talked about already, practicing silence and solitude. Do you know anybody who practices that in our church? In your life? You could go to that person and say, hey, will you teach me about that discipline? Hey, will you teach me about repentance? Hey, will you teach me about prayer? It's a beautiful gift. And then you, as someone who's being asked, gets to say, yeah, I would love to do that. That's the dance of discipleship that we're hoping uh, that God is going to grow in this congregation as we help pursue joy with, e- with and for each other. And it makes sense, doesn't it, that, that the way that all these things would culminate is in Paul giving his life away. Because isn't that what our Jesus did for us? That out of his abundant freedom that he came and he laid his life down for us that he gave his life away because of his love for us, because, of his dis- because we were his joy. He did it for our joy. And so the invitation for us is that we would participate in the life of our Savior, that we would be a people who experience great freedom to proclaim him and to live for him regardless of our circumstances because we have been with him. And that as we are with him and as that changes us, as our love abounds more and more for him, that it would abound more and more for each other and for people outside of this room. And that the way that that would express itself is, our, is, is us giving our lives away, just like he's given our li- his life away for us. I want to remind you again, these are disciplines that we're, that we're learning how to engage in. They're rhythms of life that the call of this passage is that we would start to weave them into the way that we live day in and day out. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for how much you love us, Lord. Thank you that in your freedom that you came and you laid your life down, that you said that to die is gain because you wanted to be with us. Lord, pray that you would change us with that love as we are with you now, uh, even in our worship. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.